and codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 338 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report on all things Star Trek, recorded live on Tuesday, October 10th, 2017, and available for download or streaming on Friday, October 13th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Tony. And in our spooky audio booth, he's our audio engineer, Winters. <laughs> All right, Kenna, why don't you tell us what's coming up this week? Well, this week we're trekking out how you can print your own Star Trek Discovery badge. We're speculating on a potential Season 2 of Discovery, and Elijah gives us the rundown on all the Star Trek happenings at last weekend's New York Comic Con. In gaming news, we're reviewing the launch of Season 14 Emergence in Star Trek Online, and interviewing Sam Webb from Modiphius about the tabletop RPG Star Trek Adventures. In on-screen, we've got some thoughts about Discovery Episode 4, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, and later Jace is here with another Discovery-themed Treklit 101. And as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, you know we love to hear from you between episodes, so please reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Captains, if you haven't noticed by now, we do not aggressively seek advertisement or sponsorship from other companies because of your ongoing support from month to month via Patreon.com. So, first of all, thank you so very much to our existing patrons, and we hope that you might consider becoming a patron for all the awesome content that we've been producing over the last several weeks, including a Patreon-exclusive review of Star Trek Discovery featuring James Lee, Tony, myself, and special guest Al Captain Gecko Rivera when he's available. We might have other special guests as they come along. If you want access to this and other awesome content, then be sure to visit us over at patreon.com forward slash priority one. And again, we thank you for your ongoing financial support of Priority One Podcast, because without you, none of this would be possible. Now, Captains, if you can't contribute financially, then think about sharing the show with your friends, your fellow Trekkies. Ask them, where do they get their weekly roundup of news from the Star Trek multiverse? And point them to PriorityOnePodcast.com. We're so very grateful for your ongoing support. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. Jim, what places? I don't know. Then let's trek it out. Captains, we know that some of you enjoy fancy DIY, a.k.a. do-it-yourself projects. Well, for those of you that happen to own a 3D printer, you too can have your own Star Trek Discovery badge. Jose from YouTube channel City Aperture created the models from promotional images of the show, and from the looks of it, they look pretty accurate. Links to the files will be in our show notes, and if you do print your own, please share your pictures of them with us by tagging at Priority1Pod on Facebook or Twitter. All right, so I 
owned the QMX uh, badge that I picked up in, in Star Trek Las Vegas. And from the looks of it, just from the images that are shared in this post, man, they're, it's, it's pretty darn good. You're not going to get much better than the QMX ones, though, really. Oh, I mean, no, they're no, really no, no, good no, no. quality. Yes, yeah. QMX seldom disappoints. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're more on the do-it-yourself and you're putting together a whole costume, you might be able to save a little bit of money by getting that 3D mm-hmm. printed instead. And speaking of Discovery, so far, nothing official has been set regarding a second season to the new Star Trek series. However, something that Aaron Harberts, one of the producers, did confirm, which we've heard already is that if they are tasked with continuing the voyage of Discovery, some significant time will pass between the seasons. Rumors have been throwing around 2019 for the premiere, should it be picked up by CBS for that second season. When asked about the plot direction for season one and whether or not a second season will be set up, Alex Kurtzman told TrekMovie.com that the first season, quote, wraps up and it creates new situations, end quote. Will we be left with some horrible cliffhanger? Kurtzman had this to say, quote, I think the audience has to have a satisfying experience of the season. They have to feel it has come full circle and they've had an arc. So I think we can have an arc and we can also set up where we want to go next season. So those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, end quote. This does actually follow on from something that we've heard before, which is, which I... Uh, I'm remembering back now when somebody had an offhand comment about the next season might be dealing with the aftermath of the Klingon war, et cetera, right. et cetera. So I, it, it didn't imply at the time that there would be some kind of big cliffhanger. Uh, and I hope that there isn't because, I, you know, the, the kind of we'll talk about this more probably in on screen. Um, but the kind of things that they're setting us up to, to grapple with this series, this season, is going to be hard to grapple with for, like, seven seasons, for instance. It's 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 going to be difficult to do that over and over again. Yeah, I'm worried that they're not going to pick it up for a second season. Here's my concern. My concern is that there won't be enough momentum to keep it on CBS All Access for a second season. Mm. Right? We are now all excited about Star Trek Discovery. It's been great. It's been grand. But if, if CBS doesn't start adding more premium content to CBS All Access, Star Trek is not going to move them into a second season financially. It's just not. I don't think it is. It doesn't have the momentum mm. to, to move it into a second season, especially if Kurtzman is of the mindset that they need to simmer for a long while before they start a second season. If we're talking about a UK type of treatment to Star Trek Discovery where it's, you know, one season of 15 episodes and then wait two years before the next season, you're not going to get that momentum on CBS All Access. I I don't think that's the problem. The problem is that if they got the green light now, they wouldn't be able to get it produced until 2019. It wouldn't be ready until 2019. That's the problem. And the problem is they don't have a green light, and the sooner they get the green light, the better. He's looking at a, a production schedule and going, I need 18 months to make a season of TV. It's gotta ha- I have to have 18 months to do this. And so and, and so he's saying to the CBS, the clock is ticking. If you want this to stretch on, keep by all means stretch it out, but that's what it's gonna be. And that will that will murder, you know, Ken has been throwing the numbers out there about their goals for CBS All Access and their subscribers. That will murder them. Because mm-hmm. we will all disappear for a year and a half between the time when season one Discovery ends and 
uh, season two picks up. So they uh, this 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 war this horse that CBS has attached all access to being Discovery, they are in danger of letting the horse off the leash or the hook or the bridle, whatever it is you attach a horse to a cart with. I don't know, but that thing that thing is going to be detached, and uh, that, that's that's a that's a problem. And my question it is, is a problem. Yes. I mean, I mean, and let's think about I, I, this is a movie analogy, so it's not correct. But let's think about movies, right? You know, sometimes they announce a sequel on the opening day of the first movie. Like opening numbers came in where we thought they would. Let's just you know we're doing the sequel, and they right. they announce that. Uh, here we are, four weeks into Discovery, or three weeks into Discovery, and there and we get articles like this. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm a little worried. They need to they need to boost up and buff up CBS All Access with some serious premiere content. And hopefully, the reason that Nicholas Meyer is off of Discovery is because he might be doing a miniseries for Star Trek in one way, shape, or form that's going to hold us over until the second season of Discovery. Again, Six weeks are, is, they, what he, is what they thought. Six episodes is what they were looking at. For what? For the, for the con, the rumored con... Series. And that may okay, and that's fine. That's six weeks, but it's still content that CBS is producing, so they're not relying on the one Discovery horse. But again, long story short, I think what what matters is that CB in order for CBS All Access to succeed, if they're putting all their apples in one cart on Star Trek, it's just not gonna. It's just not. It, I can't imagine that's gonna pan out. So this is actually a really good opportunity for a community question. What do you think about having to wait over a year for another season of Star Trek Discovery? Or is it too early to say whether or not it's worth the wait? Well, Captains, I had the opportunity of attending New York Comic Con this last weekend. And I wanted to share a little bit of my experience there because it was a four-day event. Um, Now, I did not attend all four days. Uh, Really, I focused my attention on all the Star Trek things that were happening. For starters, it really didn't have much. Um, There were maybe three or four booths that were selling and dedicated to Star Trek licensees. So you had IDW, you had Eagle Moss, then tucked away all in the back in the lower level, CBS had a small store with the captain's chair and the green screen that we saw in Vegas, where you could sit down on the captain's chair and take a picture on the Discovery Bridge. Anovus was also there. And if you followed me or Priority One podcast on Twitter and social media, you saw that I took a picture at the Anovus booth. Saturday, New York Comic Con hosted a panel with many of the key players of Star Trek Discovery, actors and the creative team. So the panel was moderated by Mae Jemison, NASA astronaut, who also had a cameo appearance in The Next Generation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the panel was awesome. They had uh, they answered several questions. We saw a teaser to Sunday's episode, um, which we saw most of during After Trek. Probably the the highlight of that panel was Michelle Yeoh dropping in during Q and A. So she <laughs> drops in during Q and A. Nobody knew that this was happening. Even the even the cast didn't know. And she walks up to the microphone and she's like, um, "Will we ever see Captain Georgiou? It's not fair that you killed her." <laughs> Very good. Nice. Very good. The entire theater, the entire theater just broke out in laughter. Everybody was cheering her on. There's a picture with the 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 girl behind her who was ready to queue up for the next question is like jaw dropped on the floor because Michelle Yeoh is just standing in front of her. So Michelle Yeoh joins them all on stage and um 
one of the biggest takeaways that I have from watching them live on stage is that these actors are so humble and so diplomatic and they have such such integrity and they seem to love each other and have and have a camaraderie amongst themselves um these actors and 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 producers and writers just have a respect for one another the panel that i really want to talk about is what happened at the paley center later that evening uh the paley center for media arts is another location it happened off-site in new york city and it was a much smaller theater much more intimate, smaller crowd. I could reach out and touch them. It was that's how that's how you intimate didn't, the did theater you? was. No, I did not. Nobody <laughs> did get a selfie with Anthony Rapp. You On did. the way out, that I did. Yes. One of the biggest takeaways that I I took from the Paley event was were some of these snippets, some of these quotes. I'm going to be paraphrasing a bit of what they said, but you know, Akiva Goldsmith, who's one of the directors and producers and writers on on Star Trek Discovery, you know addressed the concern of Star Trek being serialized in the way that it is. And he answered similarly to the way he did in the New York Comic-Con panel, which is that serialization allows for them to tell stories about character around a plot, around a, a, a plot that is extended over 15 episodes, but we can really dive deep into, into character. And, he, and in the New York Comic-Con panel, he had given the example of uh, City on the Edge of Forever, where sh where Kirk's love interest dies. And he says, you know, that that's a story that can be told over an entire season. You know, and then at the end of it, we just go back to the way things were, and the next week, it's Kirk's back to, to as though nothing happened. And yet he, he lost a, 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 the love of his life, right? He falls in love with this woman and she dies. And she has to die in order for the time continuum to go back in place. Dude, spoilers. Yeah, spoilers <laughs> on a on a fifty year old episode. Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, but the nice thing about having it episodic like that is that writers in future seasons and future episodes can say that's the kind of guy he is, and you saw that a bunch of other times that the the ship and the crew are always going to come first for him. It. I mean, even even though you can't directly like mention Edith Keeler again, really, and have it make sense. Uh, you know, it, it's something that you can touch stone off of. But that's only, you can only do that if you are, uh, that you know you have a certain number of pages to work with. Like, a 22-episode season, you know you'll have time to develop the captain's character and the helmsman's character and the science officer's character and the shuttle crewman's character. I mean, you'll know you have a certain amount of volume and space you can fill with character development. On a serialized show like this, you know you have a certain number of pages and you've got 15 episodes to get it done, and you have to weave that, like you said, in with a story. And that may, that's a, I think it's a blessing and a curse, because you know that, sorry, second lieutenant, shuttle guy, you're not going to get any character moments in this. It's just not going to happen. So, but, I mean, but you, and you know that from the outset. It, but I think that's the nice thing about an episodic uh, show over multiple seasons. Surprises happen, like... We haven't done anything about the Shuttle Bay guy. Let's do something with him. Uh, that's sort of the flip side of doing it serially. But, um, you know, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting little tidbits from the panels. Nothing mind-blowing. I really feel bad for Mary Wiseman. She, you know, like she's sitting there the entire time. And it was like at the very end, they'd be like, oh, and, and Tilly. And, uh, you know, like she was just sitting there kind of like, you know, just smiling and twiddling her thumbs 
and I felt bad. I was watching her, and as an actor, kind of going, is anybody going to ask a question about Tilly? Like, hello? Seriously, Tilly? I Tilly think gets Tilly, a lot of lines. <laughs> she does get a lot of lines, but I think Tilly is important. More, I, I think we've been comparing her improperly to Barkley. I think she's more of a Chekhov. A young Chekhov, kind of the way Anton Yelchin was Chekhov in the JJ-verse. Mm. Okay. Like young, smart, ambitious. People underestimate of, her. Yeah, underestimated. Like, mm. how old are you, kid? Yeah. I'm 17. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. All right. I'll do you know, a Chekhov Barclay Cross. I'll go with that. Mm. Yeah. I'll go with that. And speaking of Chekhov, the actor Anton Yelchin, who died tragically last year, was honored with a statue uh, in Hollywood last week. Uh, many of his Trek castmates, including Zoe Saldana, Simon Pegg, and J.J. Abrams, were on hand uh, at the unveiling, uh, honoring a, a fine actor who was taken from us too soon. Uh, Godspeed, sir, and uh, second star to the right. Well, that wraps up the news from the Star Trek multiverse. Now, let's find out what happened in Star Trek Online and other gaming news. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Well, Captains, welcome to Star Trek Online and gaming news. In just a few minutes, I'm interviewing Sam Webb from Star Trek Adventures. But first, I promised you last week that we'd dive deeper into Star Trek Online Season 14 Emergence. So let's do that. The new featured episode for Season 14 Emergence is called Melting Pot. And in it, we team up with Captain Jordi LaForge and Captain Kumarke at the new joint lucari Kantari colony on Draenor. Although development of the new site is going well, trouble erupts when the crystals that some of the scientists have been studying hatch. The crystals aren't crystals after all, they're eggs, and the spider-like creatures inside are not messing around. Enter the Zinkefi, who, up until now, have been using the protomatter device to destroy any planet or moon with crystals on it. They first hit the Draenor moon, before beaming down to the colony, at which point they... help us. They only want to destroy the creatures from the crystals. After teaming up, the Zenkethi commander beams up and tries to stop the other Zenkethi ships from attacking us, with limited success. However, we do fight them off, and we leave the battle with the hope that perhaps there is a way to peace with the Zenkethi after all. I kind of enjoyed this episode, but there was a couple of real problems for me, and I... Ultimately, I kind of left feeling a little bit disappointed, and I really hate to say that, but um, so it's a big twist, this whole Zen Kathy um, helping us out, right? A right. huge twist, right? Um, and it just kind of like happened super, super fast. Agre yeah, agreed. I definitely agree with that. I mean, there's limited amount of storytelling you can do in 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 a in a format like this game, because okay, so. Star Trek Online, the, the missions are sort of a go here and do this thing and then go here and do this thing and go here and do this thing. Now fight something and then go here and do this thing, um, which can be sort of limiting, you know, in terms of what you could like the story that you can tell. But we've seen it done really, really well in the past. I mean, the, the example that comes to mind was Survivor. You know, the one with um, Tashiar, where effectively you do go and do the thing and then you do a little maze and then you're, you're learning about Tashiar as you're going along and then you fight some stuff and whatever, you move on. That was a really good example of like some, some decent sort of plot development while you're just doing the point A, point B, point C. 
This one, we spent the first half of the episode flying to a point and then scanning something out in space. And I... and. <laughs> Coming away from it, I felt, God, they, they wasted all that time that they could have been talking about these creatures and learning more about them and giving us a little bit of something with the Zenkethi. Because all I'm left with is, who is this woman? Why did she... I'm sorry, but every other time we've seen the Zenkethi, they just shoot at us. <laughs> like, straight away. Why did she stop and say, oh, well, we'll just help them. And then she's like, you guys are cool. We'll we'll advocate on your behalf. Didn't make any sense. Um, I, I like where it's going. You know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but I, I, it just, it didn't work for me, unfortunately. Yeah, the biggest thing that kind of, um, I'll say annoyed, I, I can't think of a better word. The, the thing that annoyed me about this episode was what you said earlier. You know, up until this point, every time we met the Zenkethi, we've been fighting them. Surely, if they mm-hmm. were just after these uh, spider-like creatures from the crystals, a simple hail would be, hey, we're not actually going attacking you, or we don't want to, we just want to eradicate this. Yeah. It's just weird. It, it, it just didn't feel right. It, it, you're right. It didn't feel right. I mean, they could have done it in a different way that would have um, helped us develop that relationship a bit more. Maybe we would have had to fight that, that Zen Cathy commander, um, and then in the course of that fight, we learn what's going on, and then that we work together, or something like right. that. But it was very non-sequitur. I mean, the thing is, it, it speaks... I'm looking forward to what we what happens in the future because I feel like we're going to get a little bit of uh, you know that whole Star Trek maybe diplomacy thing going on. We'll probably still have to fight some stuff and uh, figure out what's going on because the Federation seem to want to protect the little spidery guys, and then the Zenkethi want to kill them all. So, but you know those little spidery guys were pretty nasty to us. So I want to find out what's going on and maybe have a little, you know, diplomacy with the Zenkethi, but for now it just felt like uh, I got whiplash. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Shall we say. Um, I don't know, did you have any other thoughts about the episode? For me, it it was actually specifically for those spider-like creatures that hatch from the eggs. Mm. And I'm I'm not exactly sure why, uh, uh, but for some reason, they remind me of the replicators from Stargate SG-1. I kind of wondered if that was the feel that they were going for. Uh, you know, if they maybe drew some inspiration from SG-1 with that feel. I don't know. They certainly did a good job of making them swarm because I might have died once or twice. <laughs> Oops. Um, but no, I, I'm not sure about that. Now, one other thing that I wanted to mention that I really liked about the new featured episode was actually the new ground map. And it's very similar to the new fleet holding, isn't it? It is. It's, um, the, 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 the map is the very same, except for the actual holding itself or the buildings are in mm-hmm. a much more advanced state compared to where uh, the actual fleet holdings are currently at. But we will get to that level and we will eventually even go further than... Uh, the game version of it or the mission version of it I should say mm. well that's what I was going to say because the, that's part of the point of the fleet holding is that you build it up as you go right yeah exactly uh, and how's that coming along we were talking about um, issues with uh, resources for developing the fleet holdings and completing the projects on time how has it been now that the fleet holding is out and you're actually doing those projects it's been pretty good but mm-hmm. 
it, it there's been a massive change from what was on Tribble. Uh, they made a big change to the amount of resources that were required for projects about a week before uh, Season 14 actually went live. Mm-hmm. Now, the big issue was the amount of provisions that was needed. Right. The, they had ridiculous numbers uh, in it. And what they done was they actually lowered the amount of provisions that was needed for projects mm-hmm. and upgrades. And they instead added a dilithium uh, okay. cost to them. Now, the dilithium cost at tier 5 levels were a year away from being at that level anyway. Um, yeah. When we are at tier 5 that's going to be a bit of an issue. Uh, they, okay. Again, they've jacked up the the amount of resources that is needed for this fleet holding by a significant amount. It's like at tier five, another hundred and fifty thousand lithium per day just for oh. that one holding. Holy moly! Okay, but at least no. Correct me if I'm wrong, but so you said that they they lowered the uh some of the provisions between yes. between the test server and live but is yes. the, are those the provisions that you actually have to go around the map and collect exactly yes yes yeah, so, so i actually think that's good because if you if you have a routine if you have your dailies that you're doing you'll be more likely to give up dilithium rather than have to go around the map to collect things aren't you this this was a very good change from you know the way things are normally done normally you have to spend fleet credits to get provisions and you dump them into the projects and you get nothing for them right these provisions you go to the fleet map and there are three different missions that you can pick up from the quartermaster and you go to three different locations and you do a mini game and it's the the three mini games that are in um star trek online so the mining mini game the radiation mini game and the omega mini game Okay. And uh, you get you get a, a max of two hundred and fifty for each type of provision each hour. So mm-hmm. basically, you pick up the three missions, you complete the three missions. An hour later, you can do them again. Okay. But here's here's where it's really good. These provisions, when you put them into fleet projects, you actually get fleet credits back. Oh, okay. It's not like the other provisions where you have to spend your fleet credits, you dump them Mm -hmm. into the projects and you get nothing. These ones you actually do get fleet credits. And I think, if memory serves correctly, it's 33 fleet credits for every 10 provisions. So it's like 825 for 250, something like that, which isn't bad. That actually alleviates some of the problem where you're having um, members of the fleet who kind of got to a certain point and then couldn't get any more fleet credits because they didn't have the things that you needed in order for the projects. So that alleviates that a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, this is is good in another way um, because... Uh, we've talked about the requirements before that are needed for just a single day's worth of projects. Mm -hmm. And within most fleets, expertise and fleet marks fill up first. Everybody has tons of them. They can't get rid of them. And a lot of people, you know, they don't have huge amounts of dilithium to push into fleet projects uh, because, you know, they want to get Zen and they want to get ships and, you know, their dilithium has to go other places. They're upgrading gear or whatever. Mm-hmm. These new type of provisions provide an alternative way of getting fleet credits, which is really, really good for new players to the game and new members into any particular fleet. Mm-hmm. Because they've added in another system into this holding called the coffer. And 
basically what that is is imagine a bank specifically for these three different types of provisions and each one can take up to 250,000 of these provisions. Oh, right, so okay. If if you look at it in terms of a project, it's a massive project. That's 750,000 provisions right there that you can mm-hmm. dump into. It's going to take a long time to fill that up. Now the yeah. coffer can be used by uh, certain members within a fleet to fill projects or upgrades, but they don't get any fleet credits out of it. Uh, So if you donate to the coffer, you get your fleet credits there. You get your fleet credits, right. So it allows people to donate as much as, basically donate as much as they can without having to worry about the projects filling up. Exactly. The projects can be filled. Yeah, you're guaranteed to get your fleet credits for it. Exactly. The projects can be filled and on cooldown but you can still donate into the coffers because they've got such a huge yeah. capacity. That's brilliant. That's actually really, really good. And you get your full value of, of, of fleet credits for doing that, don't you? Yes, you do. There's no reduction on it whatsoever, uh, at least to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, because that's unlike the, the is it the, um, the fleet marks, surplus yes. fleet marks, where you get half the credit for donating to that, which, exactly. you know, no, which basically means nobody ever wants to do it. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so, okay, so there's some good mechanics in there. Um, has it been long enough to see whether that's um, going to help overall the, the the resources issue on the fleet? Or is it, do you know yet, or is it going to need a little bit more time? Some of it is going to need a little bit more time. I know that it has added to the problem in the sense that there is now another dilithium sink within the fleet system. Right. So it's jacked up the amount of dilithium that is needed per day. Mm-hmm. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there are no DOF requirements in this fleet holding whatsoever. Yeah. Um, okay. As far as I know, okay. I, I could be wrong on that. So, But if, if there isn't, that's a good thing because the amount of DOFs that are required for a single day's worth of projects within any fleet is astronomical. And, yeah, as I said, the dilithium, there is a dilithium cost. It's added. It, it's going to be well over 500,000 dilithium per day now just to get every project on cooldown. Okay. And that's ridiculous. But we um, have a new mechanic that's going to be helping possibly um, more junior members of the fleet get the fleet credits that they need to, to get their gear and supplies. Yeah, it is good in the sense that it has introduced a new mechanic for members to earn fleet credits or an alternative way of earning fleet credits. Right. And have you got to play the new fleet-only ground queue yet? No, we haven't had a chance to do that yet because um, you need a different type of provision that has got through a particular fleet project that doesn't right. become available until the fleet is or the new holding sorry, is at Tier 1. Oh, okay. Uh, all of the Priority 1 fleets are today, currently, just getting their first Tier 1 upgrades on cooldown. Okay. Um, so in a day or two, we will be in a position to um, actually test that out and see what it's like. Okay, cool. So it's something that we can talk about next week. Yeah. Um, great. Excellent. Thanks for, the, thanks for the update on the fleets. No problem. Well, that wraps up our early coverage of Emergence and all the features. We'll be sure to continue talking about it next week. But in the meantime, let's learn something new with Winter's Weekly Top Tip. In an effort to lend a hand to new players, or even surprise the most veteran captains in Star Trek Online, here's my weekly top tip. 
Last week, I talked to you about trading in civilian duty officers for fleet credits that you get from the admiralty systems such as colonists, traders, and prisoners. I also talked about the need for your fleet to run the Coordinate Colonization Efforts project on your starbase in order to take advantage of this tip. Well, this week, I'm going to talk to you about the prisoners a little bit more. Anyone who has put in a decent amount of time into the duty officer system will know that prisoners sell for very low prices on the exchange, ranging from anywhere to 2000 EC to 10,000 EC. Well, you guessed it. This week's top tip is to purchase prisoners off the exchange for low amounts of EC and contribute them to the Coordinate Colonization Efforts Project on your fleet's starbase. This can be very useful if you're just a little short in overall holding contributions and need a few thousand more fleet credits to get your first promotion. Or maybe you are a few thousand short for a particular console or some other piece of fleet gear that you wish to purchase. For more information, we will leave links in the show notes at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO338. And lastly, before we wrap up Star Trek Online news, here are some events on the calendar. We have a Dilithium weekend coming up starting on Thursday, October 12th, and ending on Monday, October 16th at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Also on the PC, an oldie but a goodie, Hearts and Minds, will be available to play this Friday and Saturday. If you're on the console, starting October 12th through Thursday, October 19th, there is a Duty Officer Sale, Junior Officer Week, and an Upgrade Week. And lastly, on Starfleet Academy and Klingon Academy, you can participate in a particle scanning event. The more you do, the better doffs you earn. So that's it for this week's Star Trek Online news. Now we've got an interview with Sam Webb. He's a line developer for the tabletop RPG Star Trek Adventures. And now that the game is out of pre-order and available on the web, I wanted to sit down with him and get an update on the game and how players can get involved. Enjoy. Security clearance level 3 or above is required to access files. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko. Authorization Sisko Alpha 1 Alpha. Logs accessed. So, Sam, thank you very much for joining us here on Priority One today. Uh, really appreciate you coming in. Now, it's been a, a few months. We were just talking about this. It's It's been several months, actually, since the last time a we while. had you guys on the show. That's right. Um, last time we spoke, I believe you were just going into playtest for Star Trek Adventures. Uh, and now we're a little bit further down the line, aren't we? Well, yeah. I mean, the book is published, mm-hmm. so we have that out. Yeah. Yep getting that out to our pre-order customers now and uh yeah then it'll be in retail shortly okay excellent now uh, for those of our listeners who who maybe are not that familiar with star trek adventures would you just give us a quick overview of the game and uh some of the things that are available i know that there's a there's a core rule book there's also a living campaign that's going on so can you tell us how the game works and uh what the difference is between you know those two things Sure. So Star Trek Adventures is a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, it means uh, kind of D&D-style pen and paper game where you uh, play a character of your own devising uh, from the Star Trek universe. Um, and you have a game master who is running the story for you. The plot is essentially the, the writer of the episode, uh, if mm-hmm. you will. And they take you through uh, their plot, their game, uh, and you react and act within that. Um, so, you know, you are... Captain McCard or Commander Troy or uh, another member of the crew um, and you're just trying to um, kind of solve the problems that are put in front of you and you know 
go forth and and discover things and uh, interact with things, defend yourself, uh, all depending on the story at hand. Okay. Um, so then the core rule book for that is basically a 368 page uh, hardback uh, book which gives you all the rules you need to play just so you know so that uh, you know there are games out there that are more free form where people just describe what they're doing and that happens mm -hmm. but this is more of uh, you know I describe what I want to do I roll some dice to see if I'm successful and if I am then cool I do the thing that I wanted to do and the game master interprets that and, and says how you act and uh, how, how just how successful you are. Okay. So that gives you all the rules you need to play. It also gives you a little bit of background information um, to, the, to the, obviously to the universe, to the galaxy. Yeah. Uh, we didn't want to fill it with that because we know Memory Alpha's out there and all these <laughs> other wonderful resources and books that have already covered Star Trek in so many ways that we couldn't. So we've we've obviously we've got a bit of a timeline for for the for the history buffs, but we've done that in some really cool ways. So um, they're little sidebar bits of fiction. So it's it's mm. almost like the the you know the the timeline of Star Trek is told from a different perspective, lots of different perspectives from all across the galaxy, from you know uh, Obsidian Order agents to you know Orion traders and and stuff like that. We also got the Living Campaign then, mm -hmm. and the Living Campaign is um, basically a big overarching storyline that we've been writing alongside with Dayton Ward um, and Scott Pearson, two guys who your listeners might be familiar with, mm -hmm. and uh, they've given us this amazing galaxy spanning um, plot line to run um, and we're just starting to really delve into that and reveal some cool tidbits from that. So basically those adventures are available for free, downloadable on our um, website, just follow some links um, and then sign up using an email address uh, and then you'll get a link emailed through to you. Uh, and that basically gives you some some pre-written uh, adventures that you can run. You don't need to you know, worry about writing your own because um, maybe time is precious uh, or you, you're just getting <laughs> or maybe you're just getting used to the game or get, yeah. just getting used to playing uh, and you want something to run that someone else has devised so we've we've created the plot line and roughly once a month we'll be having uh, a new adventure out for um, the uh, original series kind of era mm -hmm. so we have some missions set in 2269 and then we also have uh, adventures in 2371 as well so we have next gen missions Right, that was going to be my next question is what what era are we talking about? Where where are you guys placed in, in terms of the overall timeline? Um, so um, it, it's really key to, to understand that players and game masters can run games for Star Trek Adventures in any era of right. Star Trek they wish. They could they could run it in the in the future if they really wanted to and kind of take some inspiration from Star Trek Online or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what we have done is that our living campaign and our kind of uh, default timeline is from 2371 and we've picked that because it was quite interesting year a lot happens um the film generations happens so right. the surprise d gets destroyed um <laughs> voyager also goes missing in the badlands right. and we're you know slowly ramping up to the dominion war mm. um so we're not quite at the way of the warrior yet where the klingons you know turn on the cardassians but right. we're getting there so you know, we, we are going to slowly ramp up the, the tension in that in terms of the living campaign. Right. And the original series era of that living campaign um, also then means that we're kind of it's almost like you're 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 playing, uh, you know, a bit of a, not a flashback, but kind of an extended flashback. Right. I got um, So what you discover and what you do will inform the adventures in the next generation. Okay, so the, the 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 living campaign part of it is kind of a slightly post next gen thing with a little bit of TOS in it, but uh, for in terms of the actual the core game, you said you can set it at any time. Um, theoretically, 
could you set it um, coincident with Star Trek Discovery now? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could. We had we don't have any uh, material coming out soon that will um, will actually be covering Discovery. Mm-hmm. But because the rules are are just for the role playing aspect right. of the game, there's nothing stopping you from uh, going to that era. Oh wow! Now that's 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 kind of interesting. So I li- I like that. <laughs> mm. So I actually had a question from uh, Jace, who uh, mm-hmm. uh, plays uh, tabletop and role-playing games, and he also does our literary reviews. And he's asked, uh, what systems in Star Trek Adventures actively promote gameplay in the spirit of Star Trek? So uh, role-playing diplomatic solutions, exploration, discovery, etc. Basically yeah, so that it's not just a phaser fest. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, we put a lot of guidance in for players and game masters, basically telling them the spirit of the Federation and Starfleet in Mm -hmm. terms of exploration and discovery. Uh, And there are a few things in terms of the rules that also reinforce that. So there's a kind of currency the game master has called threat, and it's basically a little pile of points that we have tokens for or people can use like poker chips or something similar. It's a bit of a kind of a metagame thing to show you how tense things are and how much the game master could mess with you and, <laughs> and just, just, just how much is at stake. Yeah. So, for example, as a game master, I could make things more difficult by spending those points of threat. Right. Now, if you as a Starfleet officer or a fighter, you're defending yourself, you know, and you're, you're fighting a Klingon, for example, mm-hmm. then if you decide to shoot to kill or if, you know, so rather than to stun, right. then the game master gets a point of threat to spend later on. So they actually build up threat. Okay. Because essentially you're making things more dangerous for yourself. Therefore, the story and the game itself will make things more dangerous for you in the future. That, that kind of makes sense. So basically, you know, if you choose to go down a really violent route, um, you could potentially be penalized for that in the future. Very much so, yeah. yeah. And then there are also uh, aspects of the rules that were introduced by uh, a couple of our writers, believe John Sneed, who wrote up uh, a lot of the kind of scientific stuff of the mm-hmm. of the rule book. Um, and we actually have a, a couple of pages dedicated to the scientific method and how to approach that in terms <laughs> of the rules. So um, it actually uh, describes how you would observe something. You would then hypothesize what that thing could be the reason why it could be um, doing the thing it does. Mm-hmm. And then you go along and test that theory. Um, right. And there are actually mechanics in place, game mechanics in place, for you to, to to do that and for the game master to kind of come back at you. So if you think it's a gravitational anomaly, but it's actually uh, something to do with subspace, then the GM goes, actually, you guys were wrong. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a, <laughs> I come back to that example, but I'm going to give myself some threat. Yeah. You guys have got to start again. Your testing shows that it was just not was not the thing you thought it was. Yeah. And they've got to go back to it. So you could even have whole missions where you, you don't fire a single shot and you just you are going out there and discovering why things are affecting your ship. There are some great Star Trek episodes out there that do that and I you know, we really wanted to put that kind of spirit into the game. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Now, you kind of made a reference to threat tokens and um so if you go onto your website at the moment where you can pre-order some of the the uh, parts and pieces yep. there's a lot there's a lot there that people could pick up um could you just explain exactly what you would need to play at the at the very base level what would you need to play and then what else is there available that you can use to like enhance the gameplay sure at the very basics you'll need the Star Trek Adventures core rulebook 
one copy or multiple copies depending on how many people want to look at it in the group at one time mm -hmm. so you need the book uh, and then you'd also need some dice so you'd need at least two 20 sided dice like you use for Dungeons and Dragons yeah because our sister rule system is called 2d20 and uh, oh, that, that basically sense. means yeah yeah <laughs> so that basically means that when you attempt a task you, you try to, to try to achieve something yeah. then uh, you're rolling 2d20 and on those d20s you're looking to roll equal to or under a target number which is basically uh, an attribute of your character plus a discipline of the of, of theirs so okay. uh, i might be attempting to fly the ship now that's a uh, control plus con task okay so i'd have a target number you know within the range of about kind of 11 to 15 right um and so on each dice i'm looking to roll equal to say 12 or under Okay. And that gives me a number of successes. So you need some D20s, and then you'd need some D6, some six-sided dice as well, because we use those as challenge dice. Okay. Um, now they show you how much progress you've made for like an extended task, but they also show how much damage you do in in personal and, and in ship combat as well. I gotcha. But these are not um, they're not special, you know from you guys that you have to buy you you can get them pretty pretty much from anywhere no not necessarily you, you can get them from any any mm. good local friendly gaming store um or any online kind of store that, that that stocks this kind of stuff but we have made some very sexy star trek dice well i was gonna say because you do have special <laughs> sets and they're color coded for the different disciplines aren't they <laughs> they are yeah so obviously i'm going with with the next i'm a next gen baby so obviously i'm going to describe this as, as that but we've got uh command red mm -hmm. got operations gold and we've got sciences blue yeah uh, and you can pick those up in different sets individually or you can pick them up in a whole bundle where you get all three sets um, yeah. and that, that gives you a total of I think six of the colored dice and then right. the challenge dice that we've got are actually custom designed um, because that you, ha you get different results on them rather than just one to six okay so a one and a two is a score of a one or a two and then three and four don't actually mean anything right they're blanks uh, and then a five or a six is what we call an effect. So uh, it does one damage, but you also get like a damage effect. Like I could knock you down or I could pierce your armor or something like that. Right. Oh, okay. So uh, interesting. Now, the other thing that I wanted to kind of talk about that I'm kind of interested in is that you've also got miniatures that are available. Um, and um, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Because it sounds like they're actually pretty high quality. Yeah, well, we decided to cast in resin. Resin's one of the um, more kind of intricate um, materials that you can mm. you can um, manufacture with in terms of uh, the kind of 32 mil scale miniatures that we've made. This is as opposed to the plastic ones that you would normally get with something like Warhammer. Yeah, they don't, they don't pick up as much quality. You have to make everything that little bit bolder, and it just mm. looks a little bit more cartoonish. Okay. Um, but, but our ones, the resin really picks up the creases nicely, really picks up the facial features really well. And it just that just helps painters when they're going to paint them because we, we supply them unpainted. Some of them um, also require assembly. So the best thing to do is uh, grab some super glue. Mm -hmm. um, just stick on an arm or two, basically. Um, <laughs> you know. You see that so uh, casually, like, eh, oh, just you know. stick a It's actually handy as well, you know, in case they fall off in combat. You just stick sure, them back yeah. on. Well, it's you fine. Know, oh, serious injury. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, we've got we got a whole range of core core sets out, and then we're going to be going to be developing more uh, for next year. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got uh, both the original series crew and the next generation crew. Uh, we've got eight models in each. Mm -hmm. uh, the original series crew obviously has all your favorites, but does include um, Christine Chapel. Mm -hmm. And then the next gen crew has Tasha Yar in it, even though obviously she was only around for one season. Yes, but made such an impact. 
Yes. Well, exactly. So we got her in an older uniform. Yeah. Um, and then the, the next generation crew are all in the uniforms. You would probably see them in towards the end of the, the very end of their, of their season's run, um, but also um, some of the uniforms from Generations 2. So Picard and Riker are both in the, the color, you know, colored shoulders uh, uniform that you see. Oh, I gotcha. I, I approve of putting Counselor Troy in the actual in her actual Commander Troy uniform. I know you put you, yeah. you, you put her cleavage away, and suddenly she's doing a lot more. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. We we want we wanted to make sure we were true to the to the year that we picked, twenty three seventy one, and mm. she was a full Commander in uniform yeah. by then. So I was really happy to to sculpt her like that. Oh, great. And tell me what uh, what role did the miniatures play? Because I know there's also you can get it's not a it's not like a, a set for them to be on but they, you've got tiles that you could kind of use how how does that work within uh within the main part of the game like how how do they enhance the gameplay yeah so i i find tiles and, and miniatures and stuff when i'm um, running a role play game uh, really helpful in terms of combat because mm-hmm. you can see immediately and everyone can track where they are who they're fighting, where they're pointing, where they're standing. Right. Um, and basically our combat occurs over not so much like a war game where you're you're measuring in inches and you know you're you know rolling dice for, for to, to hit and damage and stuff like that. Yeah. It's it it um it happens over a certain amount of zones. And a zone can just be the size of a room. Um, or depending on the amount of stuff around you, it can be the size of kind of, you know, I don't know, like a small kitchen or something. Okay. And then uh, you just you move from zone to zone and and uh, you know you there is no kind of real range on stuff so if you're firing a phaser obviously if it's much further away it's a bit more difficult to hit but you know you can shoot anyone you can see and that kind of thing mm-hmm. but we've made some really nice deck tiles courtesy of uh, rick sternback as well who helped us with those oh, really? um, so he, he yeah he consulted nice. on those for us so he told us you know oh but you know the warp core would be around here it needs to be a little bit smaller in your scene or something like that mm-hmm. and then these these deck tiles are basically kind of they're almost like a top-down view of the areas of a galaxy-class vessel. Right. So we've done, you know, main, main engineering, the bridge, and you can combine these tiles, and they have doors on the edges so that you mm-hmm. can combine them, and it looks like you can move from one area to the other. Yeah. So, I mean, we've done all the main locations that we can, uh, we can, and, we, you know, we used Rick as a consultant to, to really, you know, yeah. get under the skin of where things would be and how they would look if they weren't on a soundstage. Yeah. So, um you know, we've got corridors with you know crew quarters in, with some you know fancier crew quarters for the uh, you know heads of department and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the key locations: main engineering, shuttle bays, cargo bays, astrometrics. Um, I'm looking at astrometrics right now. We do, right yeah, now. we have yeah. astrometrics. <laughs> yeah, these are beautiful. I mean, it, just looking at the artwork, um, they're really high quality and beautiful to look at. Um, I'm very impressed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, so. I'm not somebody who has a lot of experience in playing these type of games. And for somebody completely new uh, like me, a lot of what you said sounds interesting and also a little bit intimidating. Um, sure. Where where would somebody like me go to start? Like if I had absolutely no experience uh, in playing a tabletop role-playing game like this, where would I start? Sure. A couple of ways, I guess. One is that if you've got a, a tabletop convention near you at some point, mm-hmm. go along because they often have either the drop-in games, like yeah. demo games, or they do have organized play where you sign up to play a game for two or three hours. Right. Um, say in the kind of, you know, the morning, afternoon or evening kind of sessions. Yeah. So if you go along to one of those, 
you know you'll have a roller coaster of a time you know you might come come up with some um some veterans as well to role playing but yeah. ultimately you know everyone was a newbie once and yeah. there's a, there's a lot of love for intru- introducing people to the game uh you know you don't have to be a dramatically trained actor either you know the the the, right. the group i game with at home um, whilst they do role play a lot, um, you know, they, they are very much, how are we going to solve this problem? Oh, my character's going to do this. Oh, I think I'm going to try this task. Right. So I'm going to roll the dice. So really, all you need is kind of someone willing to run the game for you, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're new or whether they're an experienced game master. Yeah. And then you need to come up, uh, come along with kind of, you know, an open mind to it and just think, well, you know, I'm going to try and be Lieutenant so-and-so for, you know, an evening. I'm going yeah. to see how how they react. You've just got to imagine it like, you know, if you created your own character for one of the shows, mm-hmm. who would they be? Yeah. Who would you be interested in being? But yeah, I'd, I'd spend time thinking about that. It's fine. Sure. <laughs> I think we all do if we're Star Trek fans. Absolutely. We spend time thinking about who we would be on the Enterprise. Yeah, yeah, but then there's a whole, you know, there's a whole chapter dedicated to character creation. Mm. And it can be done a couple of, you know, in a couple of ways. It can be done entirely randomly if you want it to. So if you have no idea what to do, um I often prompt people and go, "Well, come on, let's let's roll randomly for it. Let's see what happened to you." Yeah. Um or let's let's see where you came from or yeah. what species you are. Let's make it com- entirely random. Yeah. But a lot of people love having agency over their over their own character. Mm-hmm. And that's really how you interact with the story. It's, you know, Okay, there's a Klingon in the doorway and his disruptor's aiming at you. What do you do? Yeah. And at that point, you've just got to think, well, if, I, if I'm in that situation, you know, I'm going to invest some belief in, in what's going on. Well, I'm yeah. going to duck out the way. Okay, cool. Can I throw Try a tribble at him? Is exactly. that within the rules? Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, cool. It's going to be an improvised attack. You know, roll, roll 2d20 for me. Let's see if you hit him. Okay. And that's, that's, that's the fundamentals of it. You know, yeah. I give you a problem and you've got to try and solve it. Yeah. So, if somebody wants to play and they they're really intrigued, uh, is there some is there some place that they can go to join a group? I know you mentioned um, like a tabletop convention or something, but um, you know, is are there online forums? Are there yeah, online absolutely. services that match people up that maybe aren't near each other? Yeah, well, I mean, counterintuitively, to to describe this as a tabletop role playing game, mm-hmm. quite a lot of play now um, across the whole kind of industry, across the whole community, happens online. Mm. Uh, and there are a couple of um, places you can go to um, to play lots of role play games, uh, kind of basically kind of across Skype right. um, or, or Google Hangouts or something like that. Um, and you can go to Roll Twenty. Um, okay. And Roll Twenty is a brilliant little resource because you know how I was talking about the deck tiles earlier. Yeah. Um, it's kind of they would kind of like they could appear on your screen or your game master would draw your little map and then you'd place your the icon of your little person your character down into the into the map somewhere so you say well I'm over by this console and you you move your character over there yeah uh, so there's roll twenty and embarrassingly I can't think of any others yeah. no but that's an interesting uh, concept to me because I I tend to think of I mean I kind of think oh well I probably wouldn't be able to find anybody to play with because. I live in an area where it's, I mean, okay, there probably are, you know, people who'd be interested in it, but I don't, they're not readily available, let's say. Well, there's probably more people than you think. Exactly. The there thing, probably are right? more people than I think. But, you know, yeah. um, 
it, I, I, I would find it difficult to find those people, but um, you know, maybe going online is a is a better option for me. Sure, it's, it's, it's um, fascinating. And in terms of kind of matching people up, uh, we have a couple mm -hmm. of um, kind of communities uh, on Facebook. If you just if you search for Star Trek Adventures, then uh, there's a community out there that, that will come up, and we post on there re fairly regularly. And right. people do try and match up um, players and game masters. Oh, right. and, and try to organize games themselves again like i said it's usually online mm -hmm. in terms of actually finding someone in your local area that can be a bit more difficult yeah uh, but then we've also got a um a google community google plus community that's very active right now oh right um with kind of you know reports on an actual play reports where they they actually describe the game they ran and and how it how it went and what what happened in it to asking about the products and talking about games they want to organize as well so there's a few ways in there Okay, and you mentioned that Google Plus community. There's a link for that on the Modifius website, isn't there? I how, would how say so. Yes. That. Yeah. Okay. I <laughs> we'll try. It. We'll make sure that we've got a link so that um, that anybody who's listening can find that. Um, awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about the game. So uh, we talked that pre-order has now finished. Um, yeah. You mentioned that uh, the game will be in retail stores soon. Um, yep. So, what's coming up next, and where can people expect to find like which retail, which retailers are you planning to go into? Anybody that we would uh, know off the top of our heads? I mean, you can find us in your local friendly gaming stores, your LFGS, mm -hmm. uh, and that's your hobby stores. So, it's the guys who might do like Warhammer or Dungeons right. and Dragons right. and and all different board games because we'll be going through all, all main distributors uh, through to them, mm -hmm. uh, both in the US and in Europe. Okay. Uh, and we can go online to our store as well, uh, right. modifius.net, um, where you can order directly from us. Yeah, good. And, um, and then you were asking about uh, what more is coming up. Yeah. As well. So we're not just going to stop at the core rulebook either um, with the dice and stuff. Um, I'm already developing with, with writers and I'm, um, we're going to be bringing out next year a whole host of different supplements which kind of give you additional rules and right. different non-player characters and different starships to, to use. Yeah. Um, so the first book we're going to be bringing out is the Command Division Supplement and that's going to give you new rules to play command and con department characters mm -hmm. um, and while you've got the core rules in the core rule book this is just going to enhance your experience and give you advice about how to play those characters to the best of their ability right. but it's also going to give you around 20 new federation starship space frames to uh, play with so you could be in a nebula class or you could go right back to the nx class um, and <laughs> yeah and, and 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 run around on a ship okay. um, from that era um, so there'll be a whole host of those. And then we'll be bringing out Quadrant supplements as well. So actually the Beta Quadrant is the first supplement we're going to bring out. Interesting. Um, but that's going to be a source book for obviously the Klingons and the Romulans mainly mm -hmm. yeah. um, with a couple of things thrown in like uh, the Gorn and um, stuff like that and the, the Orions as well. And then it's going to be uh, Operations uh, Division supplement uh, alongside the Alpha Quadrant source book. Right. Uh, and then we're obviously going to be going on to the sciences as well as the uh, Gamma and Delta Quadrants. Right. Uh, and then a really um, cool one that I'm looking forward to that I think a lot of our fans are looking forward to um, that never got made with the previous editions of the Star Trek book uh, books is a Klingon uh, campaign book. Uh, oh, right. where you can play as Klingons and you can be kicking down doors and firing disruptors at people. Um, right. So it's so it's not so go out there and discover and be peaceful with everybody. It's, you know, <laughs> go go forth and conquer. Yeah. And that's interesting because I tend to think of, of something like this as 
hey, you've produced a game, there you go. Now, we take for granted in the video game space that it's that you know things like this would be uh, continually developed. But it sounds like you're doing that as well for this game. You've got upcoming content that will carry you you know, several years down the line with new fresh content. Yeah, absolutely will. And it's fairly standard now with uh, the tabletop gaming um, kind of scene uh, is that Dungeons & Dragons will bring out um, a whole host of kind of player guides and expansions as well as different settings. Yeah. Um, so we just, you know, we wanted to, you know, Star Trek's a big place and we wanted to, yeah. you know, get as cover as much as we could yeah. um, whilst giving people more rules and basically more game to play yeah. out there in the, in the galaxy. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, where where can our listeners go to find out more? If any of this is sounding interesting, where's the best place for them to, to, to get further information and sort of start on their Star Trek adventure? Well, just head out to modifius.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll find all the information you need on our Star Trek page. Uh, and then the products can be found at modifius.net, which is our um, online store. Right. And if you uh, still really on the fence about it, then both our online store and Drive Through RPG both have the quick start rules, which give you a very basic version of the rules to start playing. Right. Uh, and it gives you an adventure to, to run as a kind of test adventure. And that's absolutely free. Oh, so okay. you can go out and try the game before buying, basically. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I really appreciate it. And it sounds like uh, there's some really exciting things happening with Star Trek Adventures. So, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Sam Webb from Star Trek Adventures for joining us on the show this week. It's time to visit Jace for another Treklet 101. Hello Captains, this is Jace with the latest edition of Treklit 101. Tonight we're diving into the first novel tie-in to Star Trek Discovery, Desperate Hours by David Mack. Mr. Mack himself is of course no newcomer to the Trek universe, having written the DS9 episodes Starship Down and It's Only a Paper Moon, the comic series Divided We Fall, and numerous Prime Universe novels and stories, including the Destiny and Cold Equations trilogies. Now this book occupies an interesting position relative to the series from which it hails. While the author confirms via Twitter that it's not official canon, Desperate Hours was created in close partnership with the Discovery team. My personal stance is to consider it canon until contradicted, and to use it to inform my viewing of the series for the time being. But enough prelude, on to the book, and warning, spoiler alert. Desperate Hours takes place one year before the events of the Vulcan Hello and Battle at the Binary Stars, and one year after the events of the original series' first pilot, The Cage. The Shenzhou's previous first officer has been promoted to a command of their own, and is taking the Shenzhou's second officer to act as first on the new ship. As a result, Captain Giorgio offers Michael Burnham a trial period as acting first officer of the Shenzhou, with a jealous and disappointed Saru as second. Answering a distress call, the crew of the Shenzhou engage with drones, sent out from an ancient alien dreadnought upon its discovery and reawakening by mining colonists. When they send initial reports on the drones, and the seemingly passive for now dreadnought back to Starfleet, however, another ship, none other than Christopher Pike's USS Enterprise, is dispatched to assist in ensuring that this threat does not expand beyond the endangered colony world. 
From here, the book engages liberally in multiple points of view. Hopping from tensions between Pike, a younger captain in a hot rod new class of ship, and Georgiou, many years his senior, mounting over how to handle the situation and resolve their orders from Starfleet. Meanwhile, medical and security teams attempt to aid the colony in the wake of the attacks, but fall into intrigues laid by the independence-minded leaders there. At the same time, Saru teams with Pike's number one to investigate the possible origin of the Dreadnought, while Burnham and Enterprise Science Officer Spock attempt to get answers about the Dreadnought directly. Many of you, naturally, are going to be focused on the opportunity to see Burnham and Spock interact and learn more about this mysterious and taciturn New Trek protagonist. I can say you will not be disappointed. However, that's not the only good stuff here to be had. Saru is fleshed out more in this book, both his interactions with Burnham and with the elusive number one, a character that, by the way, I wish we'd seen more of in Trek history. Similarly, seeing Captains Pike and Georgiou clash expands on both characters. Frankly, after finishing Battle at the Binary Stars, I wanted to go back and watch the rest of Star Trek Shenzhou, even if I did know it would have such a downer finale. In that, Desperate Hours does not disappoint. In fairness, I will say that the subplot with the colonists, their fears about Starfleet, and their plots and rebellious actions really fell flat to me. While I can see the purpose of it, it was resolved very suddenly once the Dreadnought was defeated, and this demonstrated that it was really just there to ratchet up the tension and add another point of view or perspective, but ultimately didn't matter that much to the story as a whole. This could just as easily have been a completely upfront and loyal colony world, and I think little would have lost. Use those pages for more Burnham and Spock, Pike and Georgiou, Saru and Number One. There are also some fun smaller tidbits in this book, like comments about the differences in ship and uniform style between the Shenzhou and the Enterprise, as well as brief notes or glimpses of crew members that we saw but learned little about in the initial episodes. Ultimately, this is a strong initial discovery tie-in that has me eager for more. I'd love to see additional stories of the doomed crew of the Shenzhou, though I suspect they may go in other directions to expand and support the evolving narrative of the new show. And, if you haven't been won over by Discovery yet, and I feel you, I still have my own reservations, though I enjoy it so far, this novel shows the Shenzhou crew in a more typical Trek adventure than that depicted in the episodes to date. While it's not perfect, I do give it a firm recommendation to Trek fans in general, especially Discovery fans waiting to flesh out the universe a bit while waiting for more, more, more. Well, that's all for this month's Trek Lit 101. On screen. And a big thanks to Jace for his review of Star Trek literature. Now, let's look to what's on screen in this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery. The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry is the fourth episode of Star Trek Discovery. We open with Michael Burnham receiving a brand new replicated uniform sans badge, and Captain Lorca ordering her to use her xenobiology background to study and weaponize the mysterious monster we met last week. She classifies it as a giant tardigrade, powerful but largely harmless unless threatened, in which case it responds with deadly force. Commander Landry learns this the hard way when she attempts to cut off its arm for science, and now it looks like Captain Lorca will need a new security chief. 
In her continued studies, Burnham discovers that the tardigrade is symbiotic with the panspermia spores and can therefore navigate for the spore drive. By hooking up the tardigrade to the computer, Lieutenant Stamets is able to navigate precisely to stop a Klingon attack on Starfleet's primary dilithium mine. Meanwhile, the Klingon torchbearer Vok is trying to find a way to bring the Klingons back together after Takuvma's death. He and Laurel formulate a plan to get their ship moving again, but while they're away stealing the dilithium processor from the fallen Shenzo, Call arrives to steal the ship, cloak and all. Vok is left to die on the Shenzo, and Laurel stays behind to be with him, ominously saying she can help, but he'll have to give up everything. Pretty good deal for him, since really he's stuck there to die on a ship with nothing but the clothes on his back. Pretty pretty awesome deal. Well, this this is... Okay, see, this is where it gets interesting, because what does he have left? He has nothing, right? Except himself. And, and okay, so come with me on a journey. This is my theory. This is my crazy theory oh, this is that the you crazy guys can make fun of me about. in a couple okay, of weeks. Okay, okay, all right. No, 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 we want to hear this. We want to hear this. It's not solely mine. I've worked it out with a couple people, so okay, it's fine. Okay, all right. So I had this weird thing happen when she was talking. Okay, so Laurel's talking about her mother and her father and her mother. I, I needed to look up the quote and I didn't Mo-ga, have time. Oh, yeah, the House of Shadows and Darkness the, the, and Sneaky. Exactly. Right. And I had this flashback to Game of Thrones and like the assassins and how they changed their faces and all this stuff. And I didn't think anything of it at the time until the end uh. when she's like, you'll have to give up everything. I'm telling you, he's going to go and he's going to get a makeover. Like a face dancer. And he's going to turn into Ash Tyler, who we haven't seen yet, who was originally cast as a Klingon and then mysteriously not a Klingon anymore. And I'm ge- and the guy who plays him is known for being in Spooks, if you remember Spooks, or MI5 as they called it over here. So I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. And he's going to go undercover in Starfleet trying to sabotage them. And then she's going to be like all loving him and it's going to get all complicated. This is what I predict. All right, easily tested. All right, interesting, interesting. I think that she's going to play a big role. I think she's a Lady Macbeth. Is he or is he not going to go undercover? Yeah, that's the question. I don't know. I don't know. But but to your point that she's going to play a pivotal role, uh, I think she's going to play as pivotal of a role as Lady Macbeth. You know, it's whispering in his ear, yeah. controlling him, manipulating him, causing him to do... God knows what. But it would feed back into the augment virus, which would then feed nicely into the appearance of the Klingons and blah, 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 all that stuff. Oh, I, okay. I, so this is where I think, because because she, she's like very ominously, it's the whole, you have to give up everything. And, you know, arguably, oh God, I hate to say this, he's, he's light skinned. All of the other Klingons are kind of black blue colored. Right, he's the albino. He's the albino. Exactly. Um, so they they change his face around because he's got he's got the body and he, he would fit in pretty neatly. And it feeds into the trouble the tribbles thing when uh, the guy is the is the secret agent and they discover him with the tribble, you know. And there's conveniently a tribble on Lorca's desk. And it's the whole. So if you guys recall back, the the, the thing that kind of that made my brain go is. Um, if you recall, Shazad Latif was way back when, when they were announcing the first members of the cast, Anthony Rapp and all that, Shazad Latif was announced he was going to be Cole. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of, we held it up as an example of how screwed up the production was, that this guy was going to be cast as a Klingon, and now he's going to be some science officer called Ash Tyler. And it was like, what? And then I looked him up on IMDb, and his his role that he's 
well, the one that I best know him for, was playing a spy for a couple of seasons on the BBC drama Spooks. So he's got the cred to be able to pull it off, and we haven't seen him yet. And he's third in the credits in the series, and we haven't seen mm. him yet. And we're four episodes in. So I'm just saying. And y'all can make fun of me if you want no, in two no, weeks I, I, time when it's completely wrong. No, no, that's it's totally a perfectly credible theory. You're totally welcome it, to. It, 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 and it has hooks, yeah, in, it has hooks in the story and hooks in canon. That's perfectly credible It would theory. be. We'll find out. The thing is, it. I'll come on to this a little bit later for, for my big takeaways, but it would pull... Having that kind of... Having a Klingon going undercover in the Federation would also bring some really interesting storytelling because he's an he's a Klingon outsider so what are his motivations going to be when he's undercover in the Starfleet is he going to stay loyal to the Klingons is he going to convert I just want to see the montage how's he going to do that I just want to see the montage montage where he has to be trained as a human because there's there's got to be a big old montage about that but okay take it to the limit yeah yeah yeah, you're nothing but a sure, sure, sure. All right, so we jumped ahead a little bit with foreshadowing and 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 what we think might happen in the episodes to come. But now, coming back to the episode itself, what were there any Easter eggs, callbacks, things that uh, you kind of went, oh, I, I remember that. For me, the Elon Musk that, <laughs> that was, was they, just they dropped Elon Musk's names. Mm, I don't think that's no, stupid, Tony. Dumb. Tony, come on, oh, oh, no, hang how cheesy. Oh, get they out of here. Wait, for poker investors. with Stephen Hawking? They are looking for investors in the second season. So maybe that was a strategically <laughs> placed... Got no. Hey, you got billions and billions oh. of dollars. Our clock is ticking on the second season, buddy. So, uh, hey, you know, a little something. Get out of here. <laughs> I don't think it was cheesy uh, at all. I think that, that they did... I, I think that they did what TNG did during its running on television which is they use the the minds of the time which for instance was stephen hawking yeah, except mm. stephen i mean seriously hawking is yeah. a trained phd physicist elon musk is an inventor guy ah but zephyrin he's he's oh, he's, he's along the lines of zephyrin cochran he is a sort of visionary yeah. inventor blah blah i i, I want him to see it, him dance it, to hoobie doobie by roy orbison and then we'll talk <laughs> no, I I don't think that the I don't think the Elon Musk thing was uh was cheesy in any way shape, but not any less cheesy than bringing Stephen Hawking in or no. or Mark Twain during that the Davidian the series. The Mark Twain uh, thing episodes. I think is, is more or less roundly criticized altogether. All so mm. yeah. What else? What 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 kind of what kind of like interesting little moments did you think? What? So for me, it, well, it's kind of it's not a callback. It's like the opposite of a callback. So um, Klingon flirting's changed a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm thinking back. I'm thinking back to like the Dura so sisters would never be caught making eyes yeah, at no, no, some they guy smack you around. over like, dilithium processor. Yeah, exactly. I did so, not enjoy that scene at yeah. all. I just, I mean, okay, we're getting used to the different look, um, a little bit different. The whole houses thing. Um, I could potentially get used to it. It just felt a little too human. It was to way me. too human. And it kind of it took me out of it a little bit. And the but, eating um, eating the brains out of people's skulls thing that was new too. They, they never said brains. Never brains. It was flesh, eating the flesh the from her flesh smooth from her... skull. I believe it was. Yeah. So he could have been eating her oh, cheeks. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's so much better. My apologies for making <laughs> conclusions. You're Big right. Diff. I jumped unfairly to the conclusion that it was her gray matter that he was scooping out of her smooth skull. <laughs> now, all right. What about uh, t- Tony? Did you notice yeah, any? Well, uh, any we, we talked a little about this. Harkening yeah, back. Uh, you know the, the the whole concept of plugging a creature into the warp drive. That's from Voyager. That was the uh, the trans dimensional worm thingies 
on the episode with the Equinox and Captain Ransom. Mm. Yeah. So that's that, that. I mean, the whole idea of having of uh, you know borrowing a life form to uh, fuel your engines is is kind of a throwback to that Voyager episode. Yeah. Do you know, speaking of that, I'm sorry, I'm just going to divert for just two seconds. Did anybody else think that that whole writing was a little on the clunky side? Because this episode the- felt clunky with that whole, I didn't feel like you didn't need to have it screaming and then panning over to Burnham looking all concerned. Anybody who's had a pet knows that's not cool. And especially the scene at the end where it's shying back into the shadows. Um, it just felt a bit like, yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. I'll tell you what's clunky. The Klingon scenes are clunky. It just everything just slows way down. The pacing. It does. It's it's unfortunate. We we talked about this show, uh, yeah. in depth during our Patreon on screen uh, version of our analysis, which happens no less than a day after the show airs. Mm. And and I agree with Tony is that what the two things for me happen with the Klingons when they shift over. One is that I, I understand that they're that they are giving a different perspective to the Klingons, and I respect it, and I actually enjoy it. Mm. I've been enjoying it for the most part. However, when you have to read the subtitles, for me, the subtitles are going just a bit too fast, and I keep having to pause or rewind a little bit to make sure that I didn't miss a word or something. Yes. But what's also happening is that the Klingon is very almost nosekin. You play dumb jot human and yeah. that's kind of how they're talking to each other like Nausicaans talking English to, to Federation cadets and it slows it down to a crawl uh, and I compared it to to Inglorious Bastards the Quentin Tarantino film and losing a little bit of the story and what makes a Tarantino film a Tarantino film because you're reading the the, the subtitles do you know, it's it's really interesting that you say that because I thought it went slowly. Yeah. I thought I thought the subtitles went slowly, Too but then slow. I it's interesting to get a different perspective because I I watch a lot of Korean dramas and I'm always I used to wa- I'm used to watching subtitles. Yeah. Um and I don't know if that has an effect on it. And so for me I was like why are they slowing it down so much? They could totally be talking a lot faster. Oh yeah. But clearly they're not because there are viewers who are or have to keep up. That has nothing to do with it. No, no, no. It's there's a the, the talk. There's their speaking, their articulation, and their delivery is different from the the subtitles going on in on the yeah on the bottom of the screen. Mm. Their delivery is very forced. too much forced Shakespearean. Not even forced. It's it not. is they are it is not. The best analogy I have is Nosekin. They are articulating every sound and every guttural utterance. And you can hear that. You can hear that in in when you compare it to other actors who have spoken Klingon before them, mm-hmm. like J.G. Hertzler or Michael Dorn or whatnot. It's almost more melodic. Their, their, their delivery is more melodic. It's more fluid. These actors are, is very, mm. very staccato. Very staccato. The other thing is, these actors have got a mouthful of prosthetics because yeah. they've got Huge the teeth. Mouthful. And it's really, really having a major effect on their pronunciation. It's funny you mention that because during some of the behind the scenes stuff with uh, Chris Obi, you can see him almost drooling on himself <laughs> because he's like articulating yeah. it and there's moisture 
on his chin because he's spitting all over himself <laughs> trying to articulate the, the Klingon language. Yeah. You know, at some point you got to do the Christopher Plummer strategy where he was like, I am not going to put on a ton of makeup. I am not going to speak that Klingon stuff. I will do a couple of lines and then I'm going into my voice, which is my actor trained Shakespearean voice. And I can, where people can understand me and I can communicate. So a, a few times in, in Star Trek six, he would, you know, he would bring out oh, and you know, do the thing, and then he'd switch over to English, you know, and and mm-hmm. and I thought was a very effective, to me, because you knew he was Klingon. But then, let's let's get into the actual movement of the plot and developing the story stuff, uh, and leave the. Don't wait for the translation. Answer the yes, question. You see, yeah, see, that's yeah. exactly the kind of thing where even that's the sort of stuff that even even if he's speaking English, it brings the story alive. Uh, and it was also worked very effectively because it was a callback to some Cold War stuff that happened too. So, you know, Christopher Plummer, you know, what an actor. But anyway, uh, it's, the Klingons need need some work. The Klingons need some work. But here's here's the question though for both. Well, for all three of you, would you rather that they didn't speak Klingon? Would you rather that they yeah. spoke English? Yeah. yeah, I think that I think that I I'm okay with maybe the start of the scene. They go into Klingon, and like Christopher Plummer, like you mentioned earlier, there was a bit of a mix between the two of them. So maybe we we, we shift scenes, and it's Klingon, and then camera change, and now we're in English. Now it's it's See, translation into English. I, I, I disagree, because I really, really like the fact that they're speaking Klingon. I think they need to... Uh, I think they'll improve with their Klingon over time. Hopefully they'll adjust those prosthetics so it's not quite so clunky. I hope that it evolves to be better over time, but I, I personally really like the fact that they're speaking Klingon. I absolutely love what they're doing with the culture, right? I love that they're expanding the culture and giving He likes the Klingons cannibalism, he likes death. the goo eyes. Yeah. No, it's not even that. It, I appreciate, I appreciate the fact that they're giving Klingons the depth that they never had before. They really didn't. They need to. I think they need to touchstone a little more what we already know about Klingons. They just. They, I mean, we're already. You know, they're, they're they're as of the premiere, they were already filming the last episode, so too little, too late. But I feel like we've been plunged into this new culture that we're calling Klingons, and yet we're ignoring some of the established culture. Now, I don't want it to be the caricature that I saw on D- on TNG and Voyager and Deep Space 9, but rather but rather just some touchstones. I I think one thing they need to do is they need to stop uh, dropping Klingons into all the plot holes. I think that's one thing that needs to happen for sure. Like there's an operational cloaking device in a wrecked ship in the uh, right on the Federation border and they let it sit there for 6 months. Yeah, I didn't quite understand that. Waiting for the crew to die out? No, that doesn't seem very Klingon-y to me. There, there, there should have been all kinds of people fighting over that tech uh, right away. The Federation should have, when they picked up the uh, escape pods from the Shenzhou and the other ships that got blown up, there should have been an assault team on that ship figuring out yeah. how the hell they did that. They should have picked that thing up before the Klingons did. So, I mean, there's that's a giant, like, what are you guys thinking uh, there? And, and speaking of Laurel... She better have the cloaking device on that magical warp ship she managed to recover somehow, some way. You know. It was only a um, magical warp ship. No, it was a it was a shuttle or. It's got to be capable of warp if they expect to get out of there. It has to be warp. Uh, no, it's only got to be. It's only got to get far enough for somebody to be to pick her up. I'm sure she's got contacts. I think that's a forgivable one until we see what happens in the next episode. Well, the cloaking device better be on that ship, or else uh, that's another big fat 
problem right there. Yeah, Kenneth's theory about the identity thing is good, but I really think that the cloaking device is the is the bargaining chip and a huge plot hole that they kind of papered over uh, when when doing the cannibalism thing. Let's move on to our favorite moments, shall we? Yes, let's do that. Yeah. Me personally, I loved the synthesis. That opening scene. That was cool. Where was where you're, you're watching you're watching something be synthesized in the replicator. Man, that was that was that was nice. I like that. I just think it was that like nice little touchstone of science meets Star Trek, you know? I thought it was some kind of mining operation on a distant planet or something. I I really thought it was much more macro scale than it ended up being. I so thought it was a warp spore I, breach. Warp spore breach. I was waiting for Thor to show up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Across the rainbow <laughs> nice bridge. Little yeah. crossover. Oh, I loved it. I loved yeah. it. I loved it. I mean the replicators are such a staple in Star Trek lore and we've never seen it in represented in such a way oh, yeah. I think yeah. I thought that was, was cool. beautiful I thought it was beautiful it was pretty man. cool anything else hey, what about you guys uh so my favorite bit is the bit where um Burnham opens up the little spore canister and the tardigrade comes out and like licks her on the shoulder it's all cuddly and adorable <laughs> oh, I love it and and then at the end it's kind of like galloping off into the into the into the mushroom field I loved it it's just uh, it was just I. I thought they did a great job with. They did a great job with the um, the physicality of that model because it's obviously CGI'd. But you know, you you've got last week where it was terrifying and ripping the the walls, and it was all. Um, and even the beginning and of this all episode, all was some shrooms. And then, yeah, and then and then the, the the physicality, the way they animated it, even just the bit where you know before before they found the whole shrooms thing. Um, when it was kind of like lickiter, uh, it, it was it, it made it go from terrifying to adorable real quick, and uh, yeah, they did a good job on that. Yeah, uh, so I was a week early in the uh, prediction of the death of Commander Landry. <laughs> so my favorite part of the show was when when Landry lowered the force field, and my son turned to me and said, "Hey, Dad, looks like you were right." <laughs> and Fifteen <laughs> seconds later. Nice. I was genuinely was shocked. I was. I was genuinely shocked. And you know what? That to me, that was the. It felt. It felt. I keep comparing this to Game of Thrones. It felt Game of Thrones to me like no one's safe. Just and we're gonna prove no one's safe. Because I was planning on her being around for the whole rest of the season. I planned on her being a major foil for our protagonist characters. Uh, nope. No. Red shirt. Classic red shirt. I'm kind of a mixture of the between the two. E that scene when she got mangled by the target target or whatever it's called. Uh, that was my favorite scene as well. And I was the same as you, Ken. I was shocked because I honestly thought she was going to be around for a lot longer. And mm. yeah, I was like, oh, all right, <laughs> she's out of here. And it's kind of surprising <laughs> yeah. for that that actor. Yeah, I was surprised by that. You know? Yeah. But I suppose they killed off Michelle Yeoh, so nobody's safe. Yeah. Uh, who's your very important uh, player this episode? Uh, me, it's definitely the tardigrade. He's 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 or she it it. Same. I'm not sure is gonna be is gonna be key. I think it's just yeah, it's, def- it's the definite winner. I mean, uh, that's who my vote. That's who my vote went with. Yeah. on the other, on the, uh, other show. Yeah, but that's that's an interesting. It, it it's going a lot of stuff's gonna revolve around how they treat that creature. And how far Lorca is going to push that creature, and how far Burnham is going to accommodate that pushing, uh, to try to balance off her obligations, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to the Federation to try to stop the war she started, 
and and the you know the effect it has on what could turn out to be a sentient uh, being. So that that's mm-hmm. going to be the, the source of great tension. So we've got our antagonist in Lorca, we've got our protagonist in uh, uh, Burnham, and then the, the, the tardigrade is going to be the, the, the tension point. That's probably going to be killed off by the end of the season. Oh, sure. Yeah. Probably, and that's why, you know, the technology no doesn't exist yeah. throughout the rest of Star Trek. Question. Do we think that Michael Burnham can do a mind meld? No. No. Is that that's something unique to Vulcan... Yes. yes. Physio. So does that mean? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to go off on a slight tangent. I apologize. I know we're running long already. Does that mean that Spock was like a kind of a crappy mind meld because he's only half Vulcan? So does that mean, or that there was a fifty-fifty chance he couldn't do it at all? But of course, he got the fifty percent chance. The reason I ask is because what would be really, really handy right now is somebody who could mind meld or in some other way communicate with the tardigrade, and you know uh, have that kind of level of communication like like a commander like a commander troy character i got you fixed up uh so sarek will mind meld through burnham using that long distance telephone <laughs> oh thingy that he plugged into her brain and the pilot okay. or something. i got you covered kenna no problem that's that's episode eight that's episode eight <laughs> okay <laughs> They're going to have a scene okay. where they, like, hack in. You know, where they'll hack into her brain via Sarek, and there'll be, like, code lines running down, like, the Matrix and stuff. Mm. <laughs> totally. mm. Okay. All right, Captains. Well, that wraps up our review of The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. Stay tuned next week as we review the next episode of Star Trek Discovery. And for a longer, more in-depth analysis of the episode, think about becoming a Patreon subscriber. At just $10 a month, you get some extra content, including the live, unedited recordings of this podcast and those full-length reviews of Star Trek Discovery. Now, let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. In episode 337, we asked... Which unused Star Trek stories do you think could have been made for great television or for Star Trek Online? From Twitter, Judy Dinkle says, if we're talking novels, I say the Vanguard series. Which is not one that I've read. Have you guys read that one? I'm unfamiliar no. with this. Series. Uh, it's a, I know what it is. It's set in the TOS era, uh, kind of out in the station uh, on the edge of the frontier and stuff. Mm. That's about the all I know about it, but I hear nice things. From PriorityOnePodcast.com, Tyler Maxwell said, I really can't think of any of those discarded story pitches that I've heard over the years that I'd absolutely need to see on TV. I mean, most of the good ideas were molded into other episodes anyways. Example, I think the assisted suicide plot came up in at least one of the shows, and Data's emotional struggles come up, albeit poorly, in Generations. And the rest, well, it's best that those stay forgotten. And I think that's why a lot of shows, and I think even Star Trek, have moved away from the open submission policy mm. because it's too easy to start cross-pollinating ideas, and then people say, "Hey, I submitted a spec script that sounded awfully a lot like that." And yeah, could you imagine in this day and age of 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 the internet and and accessibility and all of that kind of stuff? How if they had an open policy, an open yeah. submissions policy for scripts? <laughs> oh my God, how many would they have? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yikes. In episode 337, our second community question was, what are your first impressions of season 14, Emergence, in Star Trek Online? 
Where do you think the story is going next? From Facebook, Cal Some Guy Riviera said, I look forward to these answers. It was really Albert Rivera. From Twitter, the meme Wranglout says, either a full-out multi-limb war between the Zenkethi and the rest, or a kumbaya get-together to fight against the cracking eggs. Oh, I get it. That's what the emergence is. From Facebook, Juan Aguilar says, Regardless of anything else, the state of the game, perception of the state of the game, design choices, etc., I think we can all agree Season 14 took the storyline somewhere completely unexpected, and that's good. And this week's awesome Title of Tuesday winner is Sam Ronan via Twitter, with his witty retort, Ah, yes, the full Tom Selleck effect. Now, where's my Ferrari? Do you know, Elijah, that picture, I didn't think that your facial hair could get any more majestic, and yet... That was pretty good, right? That was, that was, that was good. good, that was good. So, this week's Title of Tuesday was me in front of a windscreen for one of our pieces of equipment that we had during the 2000, our 2015 coverage? Was that 2015? I think it was 2015. Jeez. Yeah, of uh, Star Trek Las Vegas. Giffy had brought in some awesome equipment, and I had taken a funny picture. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at PriorityOnePod and Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast for those uh, for those pictures. Yep. You guys make us laugh all the time. And speaking of uh, Twitter, we also took to Twitter for our Survey Sunday question, which was, Lorca, what's up with this guy? Defend your vote. And out of 38 votes in a 24-hour period, 39% said, just what we need, hashtag Lorca. 11% said, he's mad, hashtag triple killer. Where was the triple this this week, by the way? I'll come back to that. 13% said the perfect foil, hashtag love to hate. And 37% said, I'm not sure yet, hashtag enigma. To answer your question, the triple was dissected in the menagerie. Oh, oh, yeah, I think you're right. Oh, no, I know I'm right. Oh, that makes me mad. Mysterious. Also kind of creepy, because I cut up triples in my laboratory. And I promise Michael Burnham one week that she's going to learn how to do warp drive. Next week I tell her to slice up a tardigrade thing in her cage for weaponization. What was it? What is with that guy? When, you know, he's all noble one week and then like literally 30 seconds later of screen time, he's saying, yeah, go in that lab and chop up the, the beast in the cage thing. Do not question his authority. Yeah. <laughs> Respect my authority. <laughs> The guy, that guy has a serious bait-and-switch problem is what he's got. That's, that was a serious mm-hmm. bait-and-switch. In addition to our Survey Sundays, we wanted to hear about your opinions for this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. From Twitter, David S. says, This last episode was too depressing for me. I'm canceling my subscription and going to wait until I can watch it all at once. From Facebook, Daniel DiGiorgio said, Too predictable that the monster is not aggressive. I thought the concept of it was fine, but they laid it out too obviously. I'm still loving it, as are the people I know watching it as well. So much fun to have a new show to talk about. Love the cast and intrigued by the direction the show is heading. From Facebook, Lesseter Speller wrote, I'm deeper in this the more I watch. I really enjoy the moral quandary among Starfleet officers, but also the complexity of the juxtaposition of exploration, colonization, and cultural preservation between the Federation and Klingon perspectives. So I, I told, I said last week my mom would be the guinea pig for, for me and uh, on the whole, you know, pilot thing. Yep. So we sat her down and uh, watched episodes three and four together. And we had to catch her up a little bit in a couple places, but for the most part, she's, you know, she, she understood the whole, the story. 
And at the end of it, she was just like, where's the Star Trek part? Where's the part where it's like sort of hopeful and things? And I'm like, well, they're not really going for that on this one. She's like, I kind of missed that. And she said, so should I come back next week? And I'm like, I'll tell you what, the next bit's going to have Harry Mudd in it. And it's supposed to be a t- kind of a two-parter. So let's wait two weeks and we'll bring you back for that. She's like, okay, okay, I'll come back in two weeks. So she is an original old school Star Trek. She's the one that got me into Star Trek. And she is not feeling this Star Trek. So I think that uh, uh, from from David S., my mom's right with you there, buddy. She's she's not feeling the Star Trek vibe at this point, um, and with, which clearly they weren't going for. They said so kind of up front. Um, so, but it, I understand people who are who are kind of falling away from it and and not feeling a real big urge that they have to know what happens next week. I get that. Captains, we want to thank you for your engagement throughout the week, and we wish we could highlight all of your submissions. Please know we read each one and hope to engage with you directly throughout the week. Don't ever stop sharing, and we'll try to spotlight new names each week. Well, that wraps up episode 338 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log and Women at Warp, go to podcasts.roddenberry.com. Before we go, here's a reminder of what our community question was for this week. What do you think about having to wait over a year for another season of Star Trek Discovery? Or is it too early to say whether or not it's worth the wait? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or tweet us via at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the world of Star Trek. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.PriorityOnePodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11 p.m. Eastern on Facebook. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, you can join us in Star Trek Online in the Priority One Armada. If you're interested, just head over to PriorityOneArmada.com and sign up today. And don't forget that every Saturday night, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel for some in-depth playthroughs of Star Trek Online. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash priority one. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by you, our patrons. Thanks to your financial contributions each month. If you'd like extra content from Priority One Podcast, find out what we're offering at patreon.com forward slash priority one. Now, Captains, even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show. Invite your fellow Trekkies, because it's your word of mouth that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency Podcast at GuardFrequency.com, covering the world of space sims, including Star Citizen, Elite Dangerous, Descent Underground, and many more. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency is the logical choice. Thanks to our audio team led by Michael McDonald with assistance from Brandon Parker and Jake Morgan with support from Midnight Shadow 7 of Hollow Sweet Media. Speaking of Jake Morgan, a big thanks to him for spearheading all of our social media endeavors, especially those Title It Tuesdays and awesome Survey Sundays. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. And thanks to Patreon associate producer, Navy Boatslew. But captains, most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. 
Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage. From Twitter, the Memergal... What the hell? <laughs> Memer... Spit on my monitor. Memer... What? From Facebook, Juan Aguilar says, regardless of anything whoa, else, the state whoa, of... Whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa. Elijah, I cannot do it. Slow down. Fine, you... Juan... Fine, you read it. Aguilar. I'm not going to do it with some stupid accent because I can't do it like that. You make fun of me yeah, every but, time no, and I can't do it. You I'm got sorry. the Juan right. No, the thing is you got the Juan right. The Juan was good. The Juan was really good. It's then he went into Aguilar and yeah. it kind of ruined it. It just that is the contrast I think that he's pointing out. The, the Juan was really good. There's the Aguilar that got him. I thought the whole thing was great, Kenna. <laughs> it's a lot better than what I would do. And as the audio editor, it really his his say is really gonna be the one that's important. <laughs> no, can I please stick? Please, no, that was good. <laughs> I really enjoy the moral quandary among Starfleet officers, but also the complexity of the juxtaposition of exploration, colonization, and cultural preservation between the Federation and Klingon perspectives. So I said last week that my mom was going to be the guinea pig. Is that is that her? Huh? Oh no, a Lassiter Speller? No, that's not my mother. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not her code name or anything, Elijah. Alias Patricia. In case you're interested. Even if you can't make a fan, oh, Jesus, I quit. Financial contribution. A financial contribution. <laughs> even if even if you can't make a financial contribution, soon it's soon. Send on down. We take farm animals. We take huge equipment. We like firecrackers. Don't forget to tune into Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com. Covering the world of space sims, including Star Citizen, Elite Dangerous, Descent Underground, and many more. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency is the logical choice. Guard Frequency.